right. Well, thank you guys again so much for coming. Merry Christmas to everybody here. We're only a couple days out. It's exciting. Right? So for some of you, it might be relieving. For others of you, it's exciting. But if you are here visiting with us, if you're from out of town, family, stuff, we especially want to welcome you. Uh, you know, we've been doing a, a, a preaching series called Gift Givers for the Holidays, talking about the different gifts that God has given to each of us, that he wants us to use them uh, in the church with each other, but also out in the world. Um, and we love getting gifts, don't we? You can, you can admit that. It's okay. You're not selfish if you admit it. I think Scott asked that question last week, and everybody feels a little bit sheepish about raising their hand. We love getting gifts. I mean, even that, the, the video that we just saw, kids kind of demonstrate really what's going on inside of all of us. That even if you're like me, I'm a little weird when it comes to, I, I like giving gifts, but getting gifts, I kind of have this weird conflict where they're like, I kind of want them, but I don't want to admit that I want them. And I can be encouraged by them, but I don't want to let you know that. It's kind of, I have a weird love-hate relationship with it. But, my, but kids love getting gifts. They have no problems. They don't care who's around. They don't care if it's your gift or not. My, my kid on, uh, on uh, Christmas will open up everybody's presents for them. Because just the experience of, of walking around and, and opening up the presents, it's just she shares a little bit of it herself in the process. My daughter loves, loves getting gifts. And she will tell you all the things that she wants for Christmas and the gifts that she's expecting. You know, and that kind of segues into what I was going to talk about here because um, this year my daughter has been talking about Santa a lot, like way more. Like she's she's four now, so I kind of expected some of it, but we don't really talk about Santa at home. Like we don't have like we're not like like talking building up the Santa traditions necessarily. So it kind of threw me off how much she started talking about him a couple weeks ago, and it and it started kind of messing with me because my wife and I had this whole plan of how we were going to do Santa for our kids, you know, that they're, they're allowed to ask for one gift from Santa for, their, for themselves, but then they got to ask for one gift for a child in need. Like, we, want, we don't want them just to think that, you know, you just, you're just a good kid and then you get whatever you want for Christmas. But then, she, but as she kept talking about Santa, talking about Santa, I started really wrestling with kind of the question of what to do about this. Um, and I ended up reading uh, several different things because I was like, I was like, okay, should we, how should we even approach this whole Topic. And I know everybody, all the parents in here have struggled with this at some point in time. Like, what to do with the Santa thing. And, uh, and I read this very compelling argue, or this article rather, um, that was compelling us to, to not look at Santa as, as, as like, to not demonize him as Christians, but instead to redeem him because of where he came from. And what the inspiration behind the real man that inspired the myth what was that all about? And so it actually led me to a really cool place. I know you weren't coming to church necessarily today to hear the history of Santa, but you're going to get it. And I'd be happy to share with you even the individual discussions that my wife and I had on it, but it led me to do this really cool dive into the man St. Nicholas. And what I found was so cool. It even inspired me. I told, her, I, said, I, think, I told my wife, I said, I think I might want to write a kid's book about this, just to kind of even just for my own kids, but also just it was so cool to me to hear more of the story. And I want to I share with you a little bit about St. Nicholas. So this guy was born in the 3rd century in Turkey. And at a young age, both of his parents died, and he received this incredible inheritance. So he had a lot of money. But somewhere in his lifetime, he ended up hearing about Jesus. 
Specifically, one of the things that really grabbed his attention was when Jesus met with the rich young ruler and he said, he said, look, you need to go sell all your possessions and give to the poor. Then you can come follow me. And this really stirred in him. And it became something that he just, he felt so compelled by the words of Jesus. He just, he said, I, I've got to give whatever I can give. And so he became this incredible gift giver. Like undercover though. He didn't, he didn't, wasn't advertising it to people. Matter of fact, he, he was such an incredible gift giver that the stories about him, it's hard to tell what's true and what's just legend uh, over the years because of it. But there's two specific stories that, that pop up about St. Nicholas. One of them, in particular, was about this man that had three daughters. And they were so poor that his daughters couldn't get married because in that time, they had to, the, the dad had to be able to offer a dowry for, their, for his girls. And so... They were at the time even wrestling with going into prostitution because they had nothing else set for their future. And so Nicholas heard about this, this family, and he started dropping bags of gold down their chimney at night so, that they, so the dad could have money to pay for a dowry. And the legend is that they fell into a stocking that was drying by the fireside, and that's where we get the whole gifts in the stockings and stuff. But he gave, he, he, at night, three different nights, showed up to drop three different bags of gold so that all three of his daughters could get married one day. And apparently he got caught and he made, and he made the dad swear that he, could, he wouldn't tell it was him. Then there was another story about three falsely imprisoned men who, uh, who were on death row. They were getting ready to, um, for a crime that they didn't commit, they were going to be sentenced to death. And he paid for them to, to be set free. So this man that was given all this money by his parents decided out of the, oh, the overflow of his heart from what he heard about Jesus that he just needed to give to others. And after his death, legends were born about his deeds. So much so there was, there's legends about he brought three dead boys back to life and stuff. I mean, it became this whole thing that he became the saint of, uh, of protector of children and sailors, but also the saint of gift givers. And fast forward... Because he became a big deal. There's actually a feast on December 6th that's still celebrated, the St. Nicholas Feast. You can look it up. But uh, the Dutch actually kept, kept up the tradition. And when they migrated to the USA in the 1700s, they brought with them their traditions of honoring St. Nicholas, or St. Nicholas, otherwise the nickname known as Sinterklaas. You're getting the evolution? You're seeing where it's coming from? And lo and behold, us Americans heard these Dutch saying this funny name, and it became from Sinterklaas to Santa Claus. But then moving forward to the 1800s, there was a poem that was written called An Account of a Visit from St. Nicholas by Clement Clark Moore. And this was where the, the legends of Santa really began. This is where they, she described, or uh, he was described as having a red suit, a big belly, reindeer, leaving presents down the chimney for deserving children. This is where all of that came from. A poem in 1820. And then you fast forward a little bit more to 1881, and cartoonist Thomas Nast drew this picture. And this is where our modern-day Santa Claus came from. And so it's kind of a crazy thing when you look back at it, but really this whole thing, you're talking about hundreds and hundreds, thousands of years that people have been honoring this guy, and things just kind of kept moving and kept snowballing, but it all came from this man. The big red guy in a coat came from this humble guy from Turkey. 
A man that was so moved by what he learned from Jesus that he was compelled to give gifts in his own life. For all the myth and the folklore of Christmas, it has its roots in a man that recognized Jesus is the truth and the ultimate gift. And if we grasp the power of knowing Jesus like this, it has the ability to change our whole lives just like it changed his. And tonight we're going to look at this through the life of Mary and how the gift of Jesus changed her life. The title of my sermon here tonight is called The Gift. Let's say a quick prayer. Father, I just want to thank you so much that we get the chance to sit at your feet right now to, to turn our eyes and our hearts to Jesus and really to the, the goal of connecting with the power and the amazing thing it was that you sent him for us. I really want to pray, God, that you will guide and lead our hearts, uh, that, that you'll prepare us for your word, for the truth. Please speak through me, God, and, and I pray that this carries on not just today at church, but into, into Christmas Day and then continuing on even for the rest of our lives. God, we love you. In your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You want me to give it a try? No? All right, I'm going to hang on to this for a little bit. All right, point number one is an inconvenient gift. No, no. Stay on this one. Yep, okay. All right. Sometimes things work and sometimes they don't. Luke 1, we're going to start in verse 26. It says, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be, a, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And the angel left her. All right, we'll stop there. So this is a very familiar story to us, right? Even if you don't really go to church, you've heard the story of baby Jesus in some way, shape, or form in your lifetime. God sends the angel Gabriel to come tell Mary that she's going to have a baby. And this is an incredible, an incredible thing. And Gabriel is building her up. He even shows up. The first thing he says to her, you, you know... Greetings, you who are highly favored. I mean, that's, there's not very many times that angels just popped up and said things like that. I think, think of like Gideon when he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. All right, so he's trying to, kind of like butter, buttering her up a little bit. But then he even tells her, your child is going to be the son of the most high God. Parents, let that sink in for a moment. 
ruler of David's throne for eternity. I mean, this is an incredible thing. He shows up to this teenage girl and says, guess what? This amazing thing is happening. But if you notice in verse 29, Mary's response when Gabriel starts talking to her is not necessarily just fired up right away. Matter of fact, what it says is that she says, it says, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. You know when like somebody just kind of shows up to you and it seems like they're trying to butter you up for something? You know, my wife and my daughter have learned to do this with me. They're like, Daddy, I have a question. Okay, what do you want from me? What do you want? What do you want me to give you right now? That's basically, that's kind of how Mary responds. Like, the angel shows up and says, greetings, you who are highly favored. And she's like, wait a minute. What's this about? And what do you want from me? And the more Gabriel talks, the more Mary is confused and concerned. Rightfully so, right? Saying, you're going to have a child, but you're a virgin. The math isn't quite adding up. And she, you know, in common sense, asked, well, how can this be? But luckily, she's got a great heart, and she's incredibly humble and faithful in all of this. But her response is not just immediately jumping with joy, like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe God chose me. This is going to be so incredible. I get to have the fun. She's not like that at all. In fact, even the ending, she goes, well, I'm the Lord's servant. <laughs> just like, all right, whatever God wants, I guess. And she's got the right spirit and attitude in all this. But I think she was processing all that this was going to mean for her. Because I want you to stop for a minute and think for a second about how this was going to change her life. You just found out that as a virgin in the Middle East 2,000 years ago, you were going to have a baby. In her culture, being an adulteress meant you could be stoned to death. And now she's got to go to her betrothed husband, and she was engaged, but, but their engagements in the Jewish culture 2,000 years ago, very different from us. Like, actually, if you notice, it, it says her husband, Joseph, right after this, that if you're engaged, even if you haven't gotten officially married yet, it is, it is as if you have already been married. That to actually break off an engagement 2,000 years ago would have required a divorce. So now you have to go to your husband-to-be, who's a faithful man, and say, Joe, guess what an angel just told me? And trust me, there's no funny business. Nothing about hearing this news was good from a cultural standpoint. It was a game-changer. You know, in the Matthew account, it says that, that Joseph was a good man, so he even tried to figure out a way to divorce her quietly because he didn't want, because it, it was going to affect him, because people automatically, obviously, would assume something would have happened. Have you ever gotten a gift that didn't feel like a gift right away? Like, where they get you a set and you have to build it? Or like, I didn't know your size, so I got you this, but here's the receipt. You can go run an errand for your Christmas gift. You, you know what I'm talking about. I'm not the only cynical person in here. Let's be honest here. We're, we're, my daughter, uh, my youngest, for her uh, Christmas present, we're building this, like, A-frame, smart ladder thing, whatever. 
And like the, the, the ones that are already pre-built are like $300, so we're going to build it ourselves. So let me tell you, her gift is feeling like a pretty inconvenient gift right now. That we're going to spend our holidays building this wooden thing for her. Yeah, that's you, old man. <laughs> but this gift that God was doing for Mary was about to completely change her whole life. Everything in her life going forward was going to be different. Try convincing your family that you were pregnant because of the Holy Spirit. Anybody want to sign up for that? By the way, don't kill me because God did it. But this was going to be the most important thing that ever happened to her. But not only to her, this was going to be the most important thing that ever happened to all mankind. But at the time... It was disruptive, to say the least. And the truth is, for any of us in here, Jesus is going to disrupt your life. Once you really start learning about the life of Jesus, about who he is, what he taught, about what it means to follow him, it's going to be pretty inconvenient for your life. He was constantly telling people things that were inopportune to their plans. He told, he told the rich young ruler, like I mentioned, sell everything you have, all the wealth that you've made, give it all away to the poor. He told people that wanted to follow him, he said, you need to leave your homes and people you love if you want to come follow me. You've got to take up your cross daily. You've got to decide every day that you wake up that it's not about me, it's about him. You've got to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Nothing about Jesus is convenient to our comfortability. But it is the best life you could ever live. He is life to the full. And the key to every good thing that God made you for. If you want a successful future, Jesus is it. If you want a successful marriage, Jesus is it. If you want great friendships, Jesus is it. If you want to have great children and raise them in a right way, Jesus is it. Everything that is important to you, Jesus is the answer for. Jesus has disrupted my life time and time and time again. And I wouldn't change anything about it. You know, a year ago, we were asked if we would consider moving here. And let me tell you, it wasn't a gift that I thought was very convenient at the time. My wife was eight months pregnant. On our honeymoon, we had the good fortune of honeymooning in Indio, California in July. <laughs> because God has a sense of humor. And on our honeymoon, I said I would never want to live in this God-forsaken place. <laughs> and then seven years later, I lived two miles away from where we honeymooned. But you know what? This has been one of the best things that's happened in our lives coming here. Jesus is going to be inconvenient in your life if you really want to get to know him. But he's also the best thing you're ever going to experience. Number two, a thoughtful gift. We've all heard the story of Jesus' birth so much, it can be really easy just to kind of pass it off and not see the significance of it. Really, and how incredible that this miracle was. It was a miracle that was thousands of years in the making and required so much preparation and planning from God. 
There are dozens of prophecies specifically pertaining to just the birth of Jesus from thousands of years before he was ever born. Some scholars even believe that that if you look at Genesis 3 correctly, you could say that that Genesis 3 was even predicting things about Jesus' birth. But I want to focus on one specific prophecy. It's pretty cool. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. It says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, of ancient, from of old, from ancient times. Okay, so this scripture was written somewhere between 750 to 686 BC. Okay, so do the math on that. When Jesus was born, zero. Okay, 700 years before this, God was saying the Messiah is going to be born in this small little town called Bethlehem. Fast forward 700 years to Luke chapter 2. Hopefully you're still there in your Bible. Starting in verse 1. It says, In those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house in the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And as she gave birth to her firstborn, a son, she wrapped him in, a, in cloths and played him, placed him, played him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. I want to stop there. Okay. So there's crazy things happening here. God put it on the heart of this Roman Caesar, Caesar Augustus, to take a census for the first time in Roman history. Because he wants to find out how many people are in the Roman Empire. And it's right when Mary is at the end of her pregnancy. This meant that Joseph and Mary needed to leave their home in Nazareth for about a week's journey to Bethlehem. In order to see the significance of this, we've got to understand a little bit of history. Again, I know you guys came to church for a history lesson. Okay, here's some of the history. In 2nd century B.C., Rome conquered Greece. Now, interestingly enough, the book of Daniel prophesied that this was going to happen hundreds of years before it took place. Then in 63 B.C., Rome conquers Jerusalem. Again, Daniel prophesied in Daniel chapter 11. Then in 27 B.C., Octavian became the first official sole ruler of Rome, Caesar Augustus. And this started, they started building a, a road system. That, that, or they actually were finishing up a road system that had been started in 500 B.C. And this was a huge deal because no empire the size of Rome had ever built a successful system that could move freely between their cities. And then in 16 B.C., he sets up something called the Pax Romana. And the Pax Romana was a pact that said if you were a Roman citizen, you could travel freely, unbothered, through the entire Roman population. Any city that you wanted to go to as long as you were a Roman citizen. It meant that that even if you were Jewish but you were a Roman citizen, you could travel these roads through these cities without being hassled, without being taxed, any of those things. And then in between 4 to 6 B.C., the census is issued. And right after this is when Joseph and Mary traveled to Bethlehem. 
So one prophecy about Jesus of dozens that had to take place in order for him to be born exactly the way that God wanted him to be born, all this had to happen. And there are so many more things beyond this. This is just the basics. But just consider for a moment the craziness of all of this taking place for them to be sent to Bethlehem for Jesus to be born. And guess what? The Romans didn't want this. Jesus was a threat to them. He completely disrupted their empire. They had, they had no way of knowing, no idea that any of this could lead to the birth of the Messiah fulfilling a prophecy hundreds of years before he was ever born. God perfectly set things up so that Mary and Joseph would be able to safely travel to Bethlehem at the time that Jesus was born. Think about what this did for Mary's faith. After finding out that you were pregnant, having to deal with the social issues, with the possibility of losing your life over the news that you were pregnant. And now to be able to see something like this happen, fulfilling something that God said hundreds of years earlier. She had to travel for days on an animal in the third trimester and deliver her baby in a cave filled with animals. Ladies, how many of you would like to sign up for that? But think of how she felt when she must have put all this together. Yeah, we're in a stable. Yeah, we're filled with animals. Yeah, it was really uncomfortable to ride that donkey for a week. But this all happened to fulfill exactly what God said was going to happen. This has to be God. And all this happened so that the world could be sure that God was the one sending Jesus as a gift to the world. Think of what this could do for your faith if you really connect with the power of God's planning so that this could happen. And again, that's one. That's one prophecy of dozens just about the birth of Jesus. But the most amazing thing about this story wasn't the birth, though. I know the birth gets a lot of attention at Christmas. But the birth was just the beginning. Point number three is the greatest gift. After the birth of Jesus, there was still so much left to the story. Jesus went on to live the most important, perfect, and sinless life, setting us an example of what living according to God's creation is supposed to look like. And along that whole journey, there was Mary. She was there when he was a young boy in the temple courtrooms. She was there when he performed his first miracle. She actually kind of coerced him into doing it. You want to talk about love for your mama. That's a cool story. Jesus, Jesus even looks at her and he says, Woman, it's not my time yet. And she just goes, no, 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 just do whatever he tells you. She doesn't, even, she doesn't even listen to Jesus. She just makes him do it anyways. She even questioned at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. She struggled even with, with, is Jesus doing this the right way? Is, is he te- he, he's kind of making some noise and getting some crowds. And said that his family even thought he was a little bit crazy. 
and questioned whether or not he was the real deal. But she was also there. She followed him when he went to trial. Followed him all the way to Calvary when he was put on a cross. And there he was, her perfect, miraculous gift, dying on a cross. And I can only imagine what was running through her mind as she looked up at her son. I know the moms in here, I'm sure that even just, it just it's emotional to even consider it. And the passion that Christ knows, she, she was playing through memories of Jesus falling as a boy in her head, just, just thinking about all that she had gone through with her son. And I'm sure maybe even a part of her went even back to this miracle, back to the day that the angel appeared to her and said, look, God's son is going to be born to you. And there he is. Helpless, dying on a cross. In John 19, the Bible shows us a very special thing. Verse 25. It says, Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, among some others. When Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. One of the last things that Jesus did before he died was to look at his mom. Knowing all that they had been through together. All that Mary had gone through so that he could be born. And he gave her the gift of making sure that she would have a home and be taken care of. I love this interaction. Gets me emotional to think about it. That as he's drawing some of his last breaths on the cross, he looked down at his mom and said, I want to make sure she's taken care of. John, please take care of my mom. And this is one of the most special and incredible acts of love in the whole Bible. But as amazing as this gift was, the greatest gift was coming after he died. In Romans 6.23, Paul tells us, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The greatest gift that God ever gave to Mary is the same gift that he gave to us. That you and I would not have to die because of our sin, but because of the death of this miraculous little baby, we get the chance of having eternal life with him. This was a promise for Mary at the foot of the cross. It's the same promise for us today. And I want to close our service here in these last verses. In Galatians 4. But when the time set had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir.
What Paul is saying here, it says, since the very beginning, when the time had fully come, there was this perfect and miraculous plan to send this marvelous little baby to a teenage girl. He was going to completely disrupt her life and the life of everyone that would encounter him from then on going forward. He would live the model life that God created us to live to show us how to love God and to love people. Then this little baby would eventually die on the cross to give us a chance to have an eternal home with God in heaven as his children. That in that moment where Jesus was looking down at Mary and saying, I want to make sure she has a home to go to, he was looking more towards the eternal home. That once I die, once I resurrect, there is a chance for all of us to have the gift, the gift of eternal life to belong to God as his sons and daughters. But the key in these verses is the word might. God sent this incredible gift to us and an incredible opportunity, but he will not make you take it. We have to choose to receive it. I've spent much of my life rejecting this gift. Before I became a Christian, ways that I fought God, my my version of God, what I thought he was supposed to be, what I thought he wanted from me, I rejected Jesus so many times. And I've continued to reject him even after becoming a Christian. Because you know what? Jesus is inconvenient. He is constantly changing what he wants me to do with my life. He's constantly telling me that I've got to do things that are not what I want. He makes me uncomfortable quite often. But the other side of this, even as, as, as Paul is talking about here, is part of, I think, why we don't, we don't receive the gift of Jesus, we don't, we don't really take hold of the life of being a disciple, is because our view of ourselves and our sin. He talks about being set free of chains in Romans 6, and I think here too, I can't really remember. Nope. But we get too caught up in thinking about our own sin, our own view of ourselves, and our own unworthiness. Because what I see in the mirror is not what God sees. And if you're too busy looking at you, you can't look to Jesus. But this Christmas, I want to urge us to ask the question, if you've been rejecting the gift of Jesus? Have you been trying to keep Jesus out of your life because of fear of what it's going to mean for you? Have you been pushing Jesus out because you think you have a version of him that's not necessarily what's in the Bible? Or are you pushing him away because of your own fear about your own worthiness? Let me tell you, I feel that constantly. And not a single soul in this room is worthy. 
One of the last things that Jesus said on the cross is, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And if you're not a Christian yet, if you haven't really pursued a relationship with God, I want to urge you, please, take steps. Talk to somebody that invited you out. Dig into the Bible to learn about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It's going to change your life, but in all the best ways possible. And if you are a disciple of Jesus already, it's good to ask yourself now, before the new year, have I been rejecting Jesus again? Have I been pushing Jesus out of my life because I don't want the life of a disciple right now? Let's get back to what matters in our relationship with God. We're going to take communion together here in just a moment. I'm going to say a prayer. But I want to urge all of us, 2,000 years ago, God sent the greatest gift to this earth. Born to a teenage girl, completely disrupted her life, lived the best life possible, and died on the cross to give us the gift of a chance to become sons and daughters of God. Let's not miss it this year at Christmas. Amen. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer, and we're going to take communion together. Father, I just want to thank you so much that you love us so far beyond what we deserve, that you were willing to send Jesus to die in spite of us. And thank you, God. Thank you that every year we get a chance to celebrate his birth. We get, to, we get to turn our attention and our focus back to what really matters, that really everything that's important in our lives was supposed to be leading us to Jesus. And I really want to pray, God, that, that, that tonight, that, that as, we're, as we're preparing for the Christmas holiday, that we won't just be mindful of our gifts and our time with our families, but we'll be mindful of what you've done for us. And I pray, God, that as, even as we take communion here together, that we will reflect on this incredible gift that you have given to us. We love you. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.